Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at schoolstatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, episode 236, and I'm your host, Nick Ortigo. This episode, could a new AI tool available online for free change how we teach writing in schools forever? Stay with us. Miss is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each week, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This episode, our guest helps us define what real research is, and then he explains how we can apply that to decisions that we make in the classroom. Hello, everybody. Nick Ortigo here, and I'm joined by friend, chief academic officer, as well as co-host of the Class Dismissed podcast, Christina Pollard. Christina, how are you doing today? Hey, hey, hey. I'm really good today. We are three days out for, from a wonderful two-week break. <laughs> I know. I'm excited for all the educators, as well as everybody who's off over the uh, holidays. Um, big plans, I guess, for anybody out there. What do you have going on with your family? I have huge plans. Are you ready? <laughs> ready. Hot chocolate, some good books, and a warm blanket. That's, That's all you it. need, right? I mean, as as kids, I think we always want to go and do something, do something. And now as adults, like if someone's, you know, we come off the weekend, someone's like, what'd you do this past weekend? And and I kind of am like, nothing. And it was great. I like, I'm totally cool. To with nothing. Right. Yeah, it's nice. Uh, we can't let those days go for granted as well. So I've got a topic today that I'm, I'm excited to bring to the table. And I don't even know if you know this exists. It's new technology out there. And I, I'm, I'm not necessarily excited about what it means for the future, but I'm excited to have a conversation about it. And that is chat GPT. Have you heard of this? I have not. Okay. This is scary. This is, um, I'll put it this way. The Atlantic recently wrote an article um, and it was titled The End of High School English. And, and then the subtitle is, I've been teaching English for 12 years and I'm astounded by what chat GPT can produce. And I've also had other articles sent to me um, through email, through some stuff I subscribe. And it's talking about the um, adoption rate of chat GPT, this technology I'm about to tell you about is skyrocketing, like way faster than the adoption of Facebook or Snapchat or anything. Like everybody's hopping on chat GPT to see what this thing can do. So are you ready to hear about what it can do? I'm ready. Right. I'm, I'm kind I'm, of I'm, really intrigued. Right, right. I know I'm kind of building it up, but it is basically an open AI. And what I mean by that is you can type in just about any prompt and then you get this response from this artificial intelligence supercomputer somewhere that will give you a detailed response in writing, but it's not like garbage, like it's impressive. And I'm going to give you an example. I think this is going to be the quickest way to cut through all what I'm trying to say. I just typed in right before I hopped on this call. I said, write me a 300 word summary about To Kill a Mockingbird. Okay. Oh my gosh. And this is what I got back in under five seconds. To Kill a Mockingbird is a novel by Harper Lee, published in 1960. The novel is set in Maycomb, a fictional town in Alabama. 
During the Great Depression, the story is narrated by a young girl named Scout Finch, who lives with her brother Jim and their father Atticus Finch, a lawyer. The novel explores the themes of racism, prejudice, and social inequality. The Finch family is confronted with these issues when Atticus is, and it goes on and on and on for 300 words. And it's impressive. And it actually like, sounds pretty good. <laughs> it sounds pretty good. And and what's scary about this is, you know, I mean, kids have always had shortcuts. Cliff Notes, um, you know, there's YouTube videos that give literary analysis and historic explanations about all sorts of different, you know, topics that they may be assigned in class. But there's never really been a shortcut for writing until now. And that's kind of scary. I'm a little concerned about it. Right. But it's the equivalent to many, many, many years ago, Cliff Notes. <laughs> yeah, I guess. But I mean, the fact that, all right, let's do another one. Throw something at me. Like, let's just test this thing. I, get, I guess I say that because if you go way back when, and we were supposed to read novels, mm-hmm. you know, maybe some chapters, and we didn't read them, and I never did this, but you know, you saw on television where people would get the Cliff Notes, get the quick summary, and then be able to speak to it in class the next day. It's sort of along the lines. Only difference is now you have to be worried about plagiarism because if everyone just said, give me a 300 word paper for that book, we might all get the same paper and then submit it. We might, but then I can also hit this thing here that says, try again on that one I just hit. And I think it's going to give me something else. And it's, it's now you're doing too much. It'll give you a different version of the paper. I, I don't know. I've never done this. I'm just trying it. Um, I don't know if I want this to air. <laughs> okay, right. No, it, it seems to be this. It seem it seems to be slightly different, but very similar to what I just read. But it's it's in it's a different phrase of words. As it's coming up, it kind of like has moved different sentences around and stuff. But it's doing it, and that's just based off of the prompt that I wrote. I could have written, uh, I could have typed in, write me a five hundred word synopsis of To Kill a Mockingbird or, or something. I might have been able, or something about Atticus Finch, and I might have gotten a different response. Um, I mean, let's like humor me, like give me something that you want to know about. It could be anything. It doesn't necessarily have to be education related, but I think for the purposes of what we're doing, let's test this thing out. Give me a 300 word paper on autism and elementary children. And elementary. Oh, I have another topic. I have another topic. Go okay, ahead. Hang on. Hang on. <laughs> Am, am I doing your homework for you right now? Is this like something no. you're supposed to be doing? Okay. No. Right, I just literally was looking at my bookshelf, and that's a book that my eyes landed on. Okay. I, I wrote, give me a 300-word paper on autism and elementary children. Is that what you said? Yes. Okay. Let me hit this. It's thinking. I have no idea what's going to happen. This is not rehearsed. We're just testing this thing. All right. So here it starts to write. Autism is a developmental disorder that affects communication and behavior. It is typically diagnosed in early childhood, often before a child reaches the age of three. Children with autism may have a difficulty with social interaction, have restrict, uh, restricted interest, and may have repetitive behaviors or sensory processing issues. Uh, new paragraph it says elementary school age children with autism may face unique challenges as they navigate the social and academic demands. It's still writing, by the way, academic demands of school. These children may have difficulty with social interactions, communications, and may struggle to understand the following social norms and expectations. This is not. So I have a question. Okay. Yeah, sure. that's that sounds legitimate. Right. Like if you were right. and accurate information, can it tell you the source where it retrieved the information? That's an excellent question. And let me check to see they have an updates in FAQ section. And that's a great question. Like, where is this coming from? And I don't have a good enough understanding of AI. Like, I mean, is it pulling from 
thousands of different sources and then quickly pulling this all together? Probably. I just wonder because when you're writing scholarly, you must give credit to the researcher or the author who, you know, published their work. That's you're true. not just thinking up 300 words on your own about a topic. That's true. Um, and, and I would say that certainly this can help with writer's block period like if i need an opening paragraph and i need to pull a little bit from but here and a little awful. bit from there you need to do research right <laughs> i know that's why we're having the conversation though like what does yeah, this mean for the future like and the, and i mean like you said like i don't know if we should tell anyone about this but like it's the, the genie's out of the bottle right like pandora's box it's has been out. opened it's yeah it's, it's out. out and so, so I, yeah here's the bottom line it's out there if we can only hope that a student, whether they're high school, undergrad, or graduate, if they have writer's block and they just needed to kind of get themselves going, but yet they truly do the research and can cite the resources, you know, within the paper and 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 do that, then I'm not necessarily, you know, going to cringe about it. However, for those who think that they're being slick and getting an easy a or easy out, then you have to rest on the teacher and the professor to be thorough. And these days you can't submit a paper without a professor submitting it to, you know, one of the plagiarism websites. Right. And I mean, this is a huge leap forward from anything I've ever seen in terms of like, you know, write me something and it just gives you something. But where are we going to be five years from now? Like, how much better does this get? Do we start putting journalists out of business? You know, like, I'm kind of being It's going to make us change our practice in the classroom, right? as well as with journalism. So uh, here's kind of trying to answer some of your questions. Don't you think? What's that? But I think it's necessary yeah, that we to change the that, practice. You no, know, our our yes, that yeah. it evolves. Yeah, I, yes. I I agree one hundred percent. And I think the sooner that this conversation starts to happen in in school systems, the better. So it's kind of part of the reason we're bringing it up to answer some of your questions. How does Chat GPT work? This is from their website, their FAQ site. It says Chat GPT is fine-tuned from GPT 3.5, a language model trained to produce text. ChatGPT was optimized for dialogue by using reinforcement learning with human feedback, a method that uses human demonstrations to guide the model towards desired behavior. And then the next question says, what why does AI seem so real and lifelike? It says these models were trained on vast amounts of data from the internet written by humans, including conversations so that the responses it provides may sound human-like. It is important to keep in mind that this is a direct result of system design, um, which means maximizing the similarity between outputs uh-huh. in the data, data set and models we're trained on. And it says and that such outputs may be inaccurate, untruthful, and otherwise misleading at times. So I'm just throwing that out there, you know. But still, like, I mean, we, kids will submit a lot of, I don't want to say junk, but it happens, right? Like, they just kind of have to do stuff. It does happen. And this is a shortcut that's scary. <laughs> And it's going to be an eye opener for um, any teacher out there. And I think one of the things we have to revert back to is relationships. When you have a good relationship with your students, when you really know them, when Mm -hmm. you know their work and, you know, just how they operate. If you have a student who's been lazy, maybe submitting work that doesn't have, you know, too high vocabulary in it. And then they suddenly submit something like you just read, red flag. Yeah, no, that's that's a good point. And I like that you're already, you know, thinking of like, well, you know, how can we address this? How do we approach this? And I think those are all great ideas. For fun, let's try something else out of left field just to kind of see. And let's not even put a word cap on it. Let's just say like, give me any question, any prompt that you can possibly think of. I know I'm putting you on the spot. All right. Give me an essay on the science of reading. All right. An essay on... 
And I'm going to send you the link so you can play with this too. Signs, uh, <laughs> reading. All right, let's just see what we get. It's thinking. The science of reading is a field of study that focuses on understanding the cognitive and neurological processes involved in the act of reading. This field has grown significantly in recent years as researchers have sought to better understand the complex interplay of factors that allow people to decipher written language. One of the key areas to focus on in the science of reading is the role of uh, phonemic awareness and reading ability. Mm -hmm. Phonemic awareness is the ability to identify and manipulate the individual sounds that make up words. Researchers mm -hmm. have shown, shown that strong phonemic awareness skills in young children are a strong predictor of later reading success. And it goes on and on and on. And it's just pretty nuts. Yeah. Send that to me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I will. And again, like, I'm, I'm kind of sounding the alarm. I'm, I'm kind of, you know, smiling while I'm talking about this, but I'm also worried about what it means. But I think your, your approach, means we're in trouble. it means we're in trouble, but also it means we have to change the approach. Like if this is a tool that we're all going to have in the future, then we need to think about writing and teaching writing differently, mm -hmm. you know, and, right. and, and maybe there's different and things. And then also assessing writing differently. That too. That too is uh, that as well. So um, yeah, I'll send you the link. All you got to do is use like a Google login or whatever, and you get in there. It's free for now. Apparently, I think they will eventually start charging for this service. I'll tell you this. There's another service that I had. Um, I do a lot of like social media marketing for small businesses and stuff. And for whatever reason, Facebook knew that and they started popping ads in my feed and it was called Jarvis.com, I think. And it was basically like... Um, uh, a computer wrote this ad and it was basically advertising like, you know, here's a shortcut to coming up with quick copy for social media advertising. So I was like, I'm intrigued. So I hopped on there, tried it out. It was all right. It, it wasn't close to as good as this. This is a, a leap ahead. And, you know, Jarvis, I think, was kind of the leaders. I would say this that is now free at the moment is considerably better than anything I've ever seen. <laughs> send them both to me yeah. to check them out Will do. and then of course i always get tickled and have to share with my colleagues right i think you should i, I think put them up on things. I, if you want to uh, you know surprise your colleagues i think this is something that you put out there to say hey heads up this is coming down the pipe it's only a matter of time before kids start using it That's what it. do we do anyhow mm -hmm. are you ready for today's Beware. bright idea i am ready all right sit tight Evidence-based decision-making in the classroom, it's surely a phrase you hear often, but are you really practicing it? If not, how can you? Or maybe can you do a better job of it? Our guest in today's Bright Idea segment is an expert on evidence-based decision-making in the classroom, and he's here to guide us on how we can use research to inform our decisions. Matthew Courtney is an educator, researcher, and policymaker who is dedicated to helping the education profession. He currently assists schools to help students by using educational research and data to drive continuous improvement in the classroom. Matthew, welcome to Class Dismissed. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, I'm excited to have you, and I'm actually going to hopefully not throw you too much of a curveball. I'm going to start a little bit out in left field um, just for fun, and I'm going to ask you a question that I'm just kind of curious about for somebody who is big into research. And I hear often that people kind of say the phrase like, the research says, or I researched. But as a society, are we maybe using those phrases too loosely? Is, can I Google something for an hour and call it research? Or when you say research, do you mean something different? <laughs> yeah, um, I 100% agree with you. We are using those phrases too loosely in society. Um, one of the things I teach schools, I call the what research rule. And so um, I always, I, when I have a group of teachers together, we give somebody a bell or an alarm. And anytime somebody says, well, research says, blah, 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 you ring the bell and we stop. 
whose research says that, what research says that, uh, because I think we've conditioned ourselves to just take people's word for it. And um, that's a really unhealthy research use habit. Good, good. I'm glad we're setting up these parameters. So when you say, uh, you know, data-driven research or, or use those uh, terms, you are, are getting, meaning what exactly? What's, what does that mean in your world? Yeah, so for me, that means that a team of specialists has taken a really close, hard look at the practice, at the idea, the policy, the concept. They've collected some data in a rigorous way, um, and they've analyzed that uh, to help us understand the true impact of that practice, policy, curriculum, whatever. Okay, so we're here to help educators, our audience is educators. Um, So let's kind of dive into maybe how educators can maybe do a better job of using research in the classroom. So for example, when an educator has a problem in their classroom, what steps can they take to use data or research to resolve that problem? That's a great question and a great framing to start this conversation around. Uh, Because the great thing about the education research that we have is that we are not alone in the problems that we face in our classrooms. Education can feel very isolating. Um, A teacher goes into the classroom, closes the door, and what happens within those four walls is what happens within those four walls. Um, And it's easy for us to feel um, a little pressed down by the problems that we're facing. Um, But turning to the research literature and trying to think about how have other people experienced, faced, and resolved this problem um, is a really, uh, I think, empowering way to address the situations that we have in our classrooms. So one of the best things a teacher can do when they're faced with a problem is to dig into the research literature and start really thinking about um, how other people have solved this. And so I always recommend that teachers take some time um, to familiarize themselves with the ERIC database. The ERIC database is a free, um, publicly accessible database maintained by the U.S. Department of Education. Teachers have ready access to that. It's very intuitive and easy to use. And they can access research articles very quickly and easily to understand how other people have resolved the similar problems in their classrooms. When you suggest that database, do you find that most teachers are familiar with it or is it kind of foreign? I find that it's kind of foreign. Um, Most of us have learned our research skills through higher education. We're used to working through research libraries at our institutions of higher learning. Um, But once you're sort of separated from that university space, um, I find that a lot of teachers don't know that those um, publicly available resources are there to them. So the ERIC database is a great one. All right. So when you walk into a classroom and um, you're working with teachers, can you typically tell if they are using evidence or data to kind of work in their class or is it not that simple? Well, I think it can be that simple. One of my favorite things to ask teachers when I'm in a building is simply, why are you doing that? Why are you doing this activity? Why did you teach it that way? And you can always spot an evidence-informed educator because they can tell you exactly why they're doing that. And we think about evidence from an educator's perspective. We can really um, expand our minds um, when we think about this. So an evidence-informed educator might say, well, I read about this technique in a research journal. I learned about this technique at a conference, um, and and I saw how it worked in that space. Um, They might say, I'm doing this because the package curriculum told me to. That's not an evidence-based response. Um, They might say, well, I tried it this way and it didn't work, so I tweaked it, I'm trying it again, and now it's working. That is what we call action research, actually tweaking and changing and testing in real time. Um, And that's another sign of an evidence-informed educator. I guess, let me ask you this. Have you ever done or are you familiar with like an Enneagram personality test? 
No, I'm not. Okay. Well, th- there's there's different levels, and and I, we, I may remove this from the show, but there's different levels in an enneagram, and one of them is um, like there's different categories of a personality type, and one of them is a, a category five, which I would guess just by the work you do is somebody who like really knowledge is power. They research everything. Like if you're gonna buy something, I mean, you're the type of person that really dives in and studies all the different options and so forth. Am I right? Mm-hmm. Am I yeah. am I reading you right? Am I am trying to figure out who you are? Yeah, I think you're spot on. Okay, so there's also other people who don't do that. Like, that's just not their Mm -hmm. personality. It's not their thing. And and I say all that to say, um, what would you say to the teachers out there that this isn't them? Like, maybe for myself, for you, like, this is natural for us to really dig in and and have all this knowledge to make a decision. But for some people, it's just not in their nature. How do you bring those people along? Yeah, um, and that's a large part of the work that I do. Um, I teach lots of... um, courses sort of independently where teachers can sign up and come on their own for extended professional learning. Um, And what I find is that once I can um, get an individual to really engage in the process, they start to see the value of it more clearly. Um, So it it does take, I think, hands-on experience. I think, unfortunately, a lot of teachers think that they can't do research, shouldn't do research, can't do data analysis, shouldn't do data analysis, because they had a negative experience with that in higher education settings. Um, so they just sort of have this really low self-efficacy. And I think that that stands in the way of a lot of teachers trying to do um, these kinds of analytic techniques in their classroom. Can you give me an example of like a time when you've walked into a classroom and somebody wasn't doing anything? And then, like, I mean, specifically point to, well, and then this teacher started doing X and we got this result of Y. Like, when does that change someone's life in your, in your view? Yeah, certainly. Um, I was just recently working with a a teacher who um, I I would have called a data hesitant teacher. Um, She was interested. She had a idea that data analysis and use was important to her teaching, but she really wasn't ready to dig in yet. She was really hesitant. Um, And so we went into her classroom and said, well, what if you could solve one problem today in your classroom, what would it be? And her problem was, if I could get this one student to just stay in one spot. He was a classroom roamer. I think mm-hmm. every teacher has had one of those. Right. She said, if I could get this one student to stay in, in one spot, that would change everything about my classroom. And so I taught her how to do single case uh, research design, which is where we create an intervention for one student. We collect baseline data, we implement our intervention, and we monitor how it changes. We take the intervention away to see if the intervention had staying power. And we deployed that um, on an intervention that she designed in her classroom, and it worked. It not only improved that student's behavior, but she applied that intervention to multiple other students in her classroom. And it gave her, in a period of about four weeks of data collection and trial and error, it gave her the tools that she needed to really systematically address this classroom management problem that was impacting the entire climate of her classroom. And now she's able to address that. She has those skills. She can address those next year. She has another single student um, who is disrupting to the learning environment. Is it evidence-based decision-making if you're just looking at your own data? Like, let's just say you have some software that can dive into your your sys and, and you can look at test scores and absences and so forth and kind of draw your own conclusions. Is that something mm-hmm. that you recommend teachers use or is that a totally different ballgame that we're talking about? So I think we need to look at data and evidence at the scale in which we're um, we're really implementing in decision-making. So I think for that one teacher with that one 
um, student classroom management concern, that was certainly an evidence-based approach that she took to resolve that concern. Um, if we're making decisions for a whole classroom, for a, maybe a grade level team, for a school, then we need to start to elevate beyond just one classroom and one local situation. Uh, one of the techniques I teach is exploratory data analysis, which is an open-ended and kind of iterative process for looking at data without asking targeted questions. Um, and I think that's a great place to start. But then once we kind of have those ahas and those realizations from our data, before we make a decision at a system level, we need to look beyond our system to understand the full landscape. So I think as you scale up from single student to you know, state education agency, national education agencies, I think our um, lens with which we look at data and evidence must also scale. I read an article you wrote recently and it was titled The Dangers of Over the Fence Decision-Making. First, mm. first explain to our listeners, what do you mean by over the fence decision-making? Yeah, so over-the-fence decision-making is super common in education, um, and, and I guarantee you, your listeners will have seen this happen. Um, basically, one school in an area, a region, a county, um, adopts some kind of strategy, it works for them, and then all the other leaders are kind of looking over the fence and saying, oh, what are they doing over there? Mm -hmm. Oh, that worked for them, and then they adopt that, um, and that's all the thinking that goes into it. It's just oh, what's happening over there? Let's just do that here because it worked for them. Um, I think that's really dangerous decision-making because what happens in school A may not happen in school B. And you don't know all of the details of what's really going on in school A. Um, it's also something in our field that I think is really um, something to be aware of because marketers and big business mm -hmm. know that we do this. And so an increasing number of school-level interventions that you pay lots of money for are coming with banners and labels to put on your website and flags to put in the bottom of your email signature. And that is all marketing techniques that are really taking advantage of that over-the-fence decision-making phenomena. So what's the better way to handle it rather than looking over the fence? Yeah, so I mean, we can certainly learn from schools around us. But what we need to do is gain a fuller understanding of what's happening in that school, how that school is the same or different than our school, and then turning to the research literature to say, okay, it worked for them. That's great. Could it work for us? And what more do we know about this? So a, a good example, let's, let's speak hypothetically about maybe a social emotional um, mm -hmm. sort of classroom management practice. Um, so you might look across the, um, over the fence or maybe on a school report card or some public report and see that, um, you know, office referrals are down or suspensions are down in, an, in a school across town who's implemented some kind of program. And you want to have that same effect, but you don't actually know what's happening in that school. So sure, they're implementing this program, but do they have a guidance counselor who's also dual certified as a pediatric um, therapist? with a whole other set of skills that no one in your building has. Mm -hmm. That is going to impact how behaviors look in that building compared to yours. Do they have school-based mental health professionals? Do you have those? So gaining a fuller understanding, a better picture of what's happening over there can help you make a better decision here. A lot of times we don't have access to that information. And so that's where then the lit research literature comes into play. So we can say, okay, we know that they've had success over there, what does the research literature say about this program in other settings? And we can go to the ERIC database. We can go to the vendor website. Th these days, a quality vendor should be very transparent about the research that supports their work and really dig deep into that and gain a deep understanding. 
let's do a hypothetical. Let's say you're speaking to a, a room, you're a keynote speaker, you're talking to a thousand teachers, and mm-hmm. um, there's one thing that you really want them to take away from your speech. Like, what is that one thing that would be life changing for them? So, the one thing I would hope that my audience would take away in that situation is that evidence equals empowerment. And when an educator is trying to make a decision, when an educator feels out of control, as I think we all often do at, at every level of, of the education spectrum, being able to pull that evidence in and being able to inform your decision, defend your decision, implement your decision with fidelity, um, I think is extremely empowering for educators at every level. Um, a good, another good example, I was recently working with a teacher who had signed up for one of my eight-week action research courses, and she um, was really struggling with a policy decision that her leadership had made. And so she wanted to study the impact of that policy decision. And and through that, we found that there were some problems, that there were some biases built into that policy that was impacting some groups of students in a different way. She was able to take that then to advocate for those students to her leadership, to tweak the policy just a little, it just needed a little tweak. And um, over time, then they were able to improve outcomes for all of their students based on this little tweak that she uncovered. And how empowering is that for an educator who a decision has been made for them without their input, they see that there's a problem. So she methodically collected the data, she analyzed it, she presented it, she advocated, and she changed the system for the better. Yeah, no doubt. Now, I know you've got a couple of books. Uh, You have one that's out, uh, Exploratory uh, Data Analysis in the Classroom, right? And you're working on another Yeah, so my um, um, exploratory data analysis in the classroom is a step-by-step replicable process for looking at data in sort of an open-ended way. Um, it takes the the stance that if we ask a question, we get an answer. Um, but if we start kind of just perusing the data, browsing like you do in a shop, um, then you start to find different anomalies that you never would have thought to look for in the first place. Mm. Um, the book is really step-by-step, so you can walk through it. It has a vignette, so you can follow a single teacher as she implements every step of the process along the way. It's also supported online with videos and downloads. You can actually download the data set from the vignette and kind of test yourself and check your answers against the answers um, that the teacher in the book gets. So it's really designed to be a self-study or a group study. Um, then the book that I have coming out in January is called um, Adventures in Action Research. And so it's an action research book. It's also a step-by-step manual. It's kind of set up like a choose-your-own-adventure book. And oh. so you complete a task, and then at the end it says, if you want to do this, turn to this page. Or if you want to try this, turn to this page. And so um, it really is sequential. It takes you step-by-step. There are five different research designs, and it breaks them down again step-by-step. Here's how to collect the data, analyze the data, make the decision. Um, and so I'm really excited for that one to come out in January. That's great. I'd love to have you back on the show uh, as the book's being released uh, next year, early next year. Yeah. So let's talk about exploratory uh, data analysis in the classroom. If somebody wants to pick that up, where's the best place to find that? Is it Amazon or your website? Where, where do you go? Yeah. So they can get it on Amazon. They can get it on my website, uh, matthewbcourtney.com. Um, and also on the website are all of those supporting materials. Uh, there's also a sample. So if you want to try it out, there's about, I don't know, maybe 50 pages of the book um, that you can download and, and read through before you buy it. Awesome. Well, Matthew, uh, we really appreciate you taking the time to kind of enlighten us when it comes to all of this. Um, are you ready for our pop quiz? I'm ready. All right. First question. If students could only go to school for one subject, 
which subject should it be? Um, I think it should be literature. Because if you can teach yourself to read and think deeply about your reading, you can teach yourself anything. What are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching? More arts. What does every child deserve? Every child deserves an educator who loves them. What's the biggest challenge for today's educators? Time. We put way too much on their plate. They need more time to think and work methodically. And what's the best gift to give an educator? Oh, the best gift to give an educator? My book, Exploratory Data Analysis in the Classroom. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Which teacher changed your life? My fourth grade teacher, Tara Isaacs. Um, We are still in touch this many years later, and she's off doing wonderful things. Um, I owe my whole life and career to her. Wow, that's that's quite the statement. I mean, why, fourth grade, like what what did she do that changed you? Um, she really taught me to love learning for the first time, and um, I think instilled in me a hunger and a thirst for knowledge that has yet to be quenched. That's great. All right, what's a book that you've read recently, loved, and want to recommend to our audience? Um, a book I have read recently and loved is The Sum of Us by Heather McGee. Um, It is a wonderful look at how um, the United States history of racism has shaped all aspects of society, including things that you never even thought of before. You know, I think somebody else has recommended that recently on this uh, podcast. So that's uh, one I'm going to definitely have to check out. Again, uh, if you'd like to uh, keep up with Matthew, uh, you can go to his website, MatthewBCourtney.com. You're also on Twitter, too, right? you got a pretty big following on there, I think. Yes, I'm also on Twitter. Okay, and that handle is at MBCourtneyEDD, right? That's correct. All right. Well, uh, Matthew, thank you so much for joining us on Class Dismissed. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was a great time. going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. If you want to send us an idea or comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com or tweet us at classdismiss. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So please subscribe to the show. And we'd also appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes. On behalf of all the good people working at School Status and Christina representing all those educators out there, thank you for listening. I'm Nick Ortigo, and I'll talk with you next week. Class Dismissed! Thank you.